0: Not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? it doesn't seem like we can agree on much anymore. In fact, that might be the one thing we can all agree on. We are divided, we are fractured. Unity is hard to find. So if you wanna grow a platform, if you wanna get a following, if you wanna be a big person in your local community, the best way to do it today is by buying into division, being divisive. That seems to be what people want in this moment, even as we all say we don't want it. And yet, the New Testament is full of calls to unity. The Apostle Paul saw unity as one of the central means by which we witness to the truth and power of Jesus. He is the one king who can unite disunited people. He is the one who has that power. Today, I'm going to be talking to my friend Dan Darling. He has experienced the cost of division in a very personal way and in an incredibly public way, but I don't want to jump into his story too soon. We start right there as the episode begins. Dan Darling is the author of multiple books, most recently, Agents of Grace, a book about unity in a time of division he currently serves as the director of the land center for cultural engagement at southwestern baptist theological seminary and is a assistant professor of faith and culture at texas baptist college i think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation and if you're anything like me you might even get a little bit of conviction Dan, thanks so much for being on the show with us today.
1: Patrick, thanks for having
0: me on, man. What an honor to be on the show. Love what you're doing. Huge fan. Well, that's kind of you. You know, unity is definitely not the first word that comes to mind when people look at today's political and cultural and religious landscape. I think we see more divided today in the church and in our culture than personally, I'm not that old, but personally than I can ever remember. And, you know, I think we'd have to go back to maybe the 60s to find a similar moment in American history. We're dividing at this point over about every imaginable issue. And if I can just be honest, sometimes it feels like those divisions are necessary if we want to do love and pursue justice and righteousness, but other times, maybe not. And you've written a book about unity in a time of division, which might be bad for selling books. I don't know. But part of the reason why I think, if I've read your book, right, is your own story. You've experienced in your own life, the pain of division. So I want to start back in August of 2021, when you wrote a column in USA Today about getting the COVID vaccine. Can you just tell us a bit about what you wrote, why you wrote it, and then what happened?
1: Yeah, what was funny about that is, you know, I write all the time, you know, and even coming into the position at NRB, that was kind of understood that I write for USA Today, I write for World Magazine, I write for a number of places. I read on far more controversial topics, you know, like refugees and pro-life stuff and all this kind of thing. So I didn't think much of it. And what's really interesting is that the purpose of that column, and then I went on TV and I talked about it, was to actually push back on the narrative that was going on at the time that All these evangelicals are anti-science, so they're a bunch of backward hicks, and why aren't they getting the vaccine? And I wanted to explain to sort of the elites in many ways, here's why people are skeptical about the vaccine. And I kind of walked through Look, widespread social distrust, every institution, the public health officials had really been inconsistent, even contradicting themselves on a number of things, whether it's mass, whether it's gathering. The vaccine was new. And then I just kind of said, well, nevertheless, here's why I got it. And I'll just share a few reasons. You know, one, I just said, hey, look, President Trump, who, whether you like him or hate him, he's not one to give into conventional wisdom. He championed this thing. And then I said, I watched the development of it. We had some friends that passed away of COVID. And I think it can help people not go through that. But nevertheless, you know, go talk to your doctor. You know, don't take it from me. Go talk to your doctor. I never really said you have to go get it. I just said, here's why I did it. And in fact, the feedback I got from that column and from TV, was mostly positive. The only negative feedback I got was actually from the left where people were like, you should have crushed those evangelicals. How could you not be (laughs) harder on them? And I said, well, that's probably why you're not convincing very many people. Um, (laughs) Yeah. In fact, I had a lot of folks who were hesitant about the vaccine at the time say, man, thanks for not throwing us under the bus. Thanks for defending us. When I went on TV, I was even more vocal because it's on Morning Joe and Joe was just like, wanting to go there like, I can't believe these people. Why are they whatever? And I was like, Joe, first of all, 75% of evangelicals are getting it. Here's why there's distrust. I totally get it. Nonetheless, here's why I got it. So I did that You know, on a Wednesday. We were all working from home back then, I think still. I come into the office following Monday and was like, well, we have to let you go because you're supposed to be neutral on the vaccine and you were not. I was really floored that that was the reason I was being let go. I mean, Our organization wasn't neutral. We had several members who were organizing vaccine drives. We had actually championed the vaccine as a reason for people to come to our conference. So it was just really bizarre. So it was kind of a disorienting time, Patrick. I mean, you had the first wave of like, I can't believe this is happening. Am I going to be okay? And then the second wave, once it became public, which I didn't intend for it to be public at all, I didn't leak it. I had reached out to a few friends to try to get some help and how should I think through this? But I didn't leak it. I didn't want it to be out. No one wants to be fired in public, right? But once it got out, the second thing was, how do I deal with this? I mean, I was like the top of the news for like two weeks. I mean, you go on social media, it was like, at the time, it was like Afghanistan, COVID, and me as news stories. <laughs> I mean, every major news outlet covered it. So that was really wild. And I just, you know, the Lord just kind of stirred in my heart. like I was basically thinking, I really need to use this opportunity to urge Christians toward unity, that we're fighting over things that are tertiary, secondary and tertiary. We're dividing over dumb things, and maybe I can demonstrate with my public response to this something different. I'm not going to go on a revenge tour and try to get my pound of flesh. Maybe I can demonstrate something different, forgiveness. So I actually went on CNN like a week later and... The CNN host was actually kind of mad at me because he really (laughs) wanted me to throw Ennerby under the bus. I was like, no, I forgive them. I love those guys. I mean, that was kind of like, can I use this platform for something good? You know, that's kind of what I was thinking. So,
0: I mean, I have to imagine, though, I mean, when most people go through this kind of pain, it often leads them to becoming more divisive. It becomes a justification for why I need to be more divisive. They start fighting against people and the movements that cause them pain and harm. I mean, did you feel that temptation? I imagine you had to feel that temptation to some degree.
1: Yeah, I did. I mean, the temptation is to publicly lash out. It's so easy now. You know, you could do a tweet thread, you could do an article, you could do all kinds of stuff. Part of me, I've been a little turned off by folks who've done that. I'm not judging how other people have responded to similar situations, but the kind of ongoing revenge tour, getting your pound of flesh, letting everyone know that you were grieved. There's a market there for that, even among Christians, even among evangelicals. And I just felt like that's not what I want to do. It's very tempting.
0: It is. I mean, and so instead, you become the director of the Land Center for Cultural Engagement, where you've made unity and civil disagreement a keystone of the organization. You've written a book now about Christian unity. What pushed you in that direction? Like you just said, I want to do this differently. Why? I want to help Christians think through a couple of things. Number
1: one... As the church, and this book is really written to the church. I've written other books that are like, how should we think about the world around us? But this is written to the church to say, what does it look like for Christians the way we treat each other, to love each other as Christ commanded us? What does unity mean? I think a lot of people have a misconception of that. What are the issues worth fighting for? And what are the issues worth being open-handed about? And we could talk about this. You know, there's this idea of theological triage that there are some primary issues that we can't budge on. There are secondary issues where I think denominations form Right? Like, I'm Baptist. I think you're PCA. I'm
0: not PCA. I'm EPC, but close. Presbyterian EPC still.
1: Presbyterian. There's so much we agree on. We agree on orthodoxy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we do.
1: We do so much together, but we diverge when it comes to how we organize as a church. Mm-hmm. I think that's healthy. I think the fact that there's all these denominations is this sort of mosaic of the body of Christ we learn from each other, but we have those divisions. I think those are healthy. But then there's tertiary things that even within our congregations— we can disagree on strongly but still you know be friends and still work together and what i'm afraid of is that we're fighting so much over these tertiary things not even third order things fourth order things that are important but not ultimate where it's taking away energy and time from fighting for the most important things you know paul says to timothy in first timothy he says fight the good fight of faith you know he's telling young timothy hey listen you're going to take a stand. You're going to have to fight. You know, as Jude says, contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. There's a body of truth that you cannot surrender. It is, tells us like who God is and how he's revealed himself to us. But then he says in 2 Timothy, avoid stupid and foolish arguments. So there are arguments. There's places that we could spend our fighting energy that are just wrong. So I really want to help folks understand that, a new generation understand that. And I also want to. Help folks at the Land Center and some of the things I'm doing. Like, what does it look like for a Christian to engage the world, particularly America? I mean, look, we've been put in America in 2023, not by accident. You know, Acts 17 says God has appointed us places and times for a purpose. We have this stewardship as a citizen of a democracy or a representative republic, however you want to call it. How do we steward this well? What does it look like? We can't pretend that it's not here. But what do we do with it and what does that look like? So hopefully I can contribute to that conversation. I think it's an important one.
0: Back to the New Testament, in your book, throughout your book, you point out that disunity and unity are actually major themes that run throughout the New Testament, but especially in Paul's letters. So maybe just help us understand, how is unity central to our gospel proclamation and witness? First of all, let's talk about what unity is.
1: I think when people think unity, Christians, most even Christians, they kind of roll their eyes. They think we're talking about everyone standing around a campfire singing kumbaya and some weird cult-like thing. Unity is not sameness. In fact, unity is people who are vastly different coming together for a common purpose. And we actually need unity in our lives. We don't even realize it. So the New Testament compares us to a body. Well, our body is made up of vastly different parts. And when those parts are not unified— we don't function well, right? If you have a stomach ache, if you have a virus, if you break your leg, like something's off. There's a discord there, right? If you get a disease, there's not a unity in the purpose of your parts working together. Or even think like your car, like you get in your car and you go to work. Everything in your car has to be unified, all these different parts working together to get you there. So we understand this. Or when you go to a concert and you hear a performance, right? My son is a musician. He plays in a jazz band. You have these different instruments unified. One discordant note, the whole thing is messed up. So unity matters for our effectiveness, right? Proverbs says a cord of three strands is not easily broken. It's harder for the enemy to distract us and to diminish our witness when we are unified. And, you know, Jesus said that the world will know that you are mine by the way you love each other. Francis Schaeffer, who was one of the great apologists of the 20th century, he was not afraid to speak up, to the culture. He was not afraid to be prophetic to the church. And yet he wrote a book called The Mark of a Christian Toward the End of His Life, and he says that God has given the world the right to judge the validity of our faith by the way we treat each other. In other words, the world should look in on us and say, and I don't agree with these people. I don't even understand what they believe. They have some weird ideas. But man, the way they love each other, they have no business being together, and yet they do this. And so it's not just a feel-good thing. It's not just To make us feel nice, genuine Christian unity around the truth is a witness. It's a signpost to another world. And in some ways, it's a lot like sanctification. And we are living up with the power of the Holy Spirit, living up to what we already are. We're declared righteous, but through the process of sanctification, we're trying to work out our salvation. We're going to live up to what we already are. Same with unity. Because if you go to the end of the Bible, you go into Revelation, you talk about how we will be unified in every nation, tribe, and tongue around the throne of God. So practicing unity and maintaining unity and working for it in this already not yet is living up to what we already are, especially in a divided world. It's almost a signpost to another world. So what happens when the inverse is true? Well, I think when the inverse is true, number one, when we're bogged down with disunity and fighting over stupid things as Paul says, stupid and foolish things, it opens the door for us to be ineffective, to be distracted, for the enemy to devour, right? When we're divided. It's a bad witness for a watching world. It's a bad witness. Listen, the world right now is so divided. We're in a very disruptive age. You've written a lot about this. You've studied this, I think, very well. But, you know, Mark Sayers just talks about how we're in this gray zone between eras. I think the digital revolution, the pandemic, we're in a disruptive era. The world's divided. When the church is the one place where people can come and be unified around the common purpose of the gospel— the truth of the gospel, it is a witness to the world. When we're not, it's it's a bad witness. It's an ineffective witness. I think it really does matter. When the inverse is true, it really does matter. And by the way, the people telling us to pursue unity, Paul, Peter, these were not shrinking violets. (laughs) Paul was no squish. Both went to their death for preaching the gospel. And I just want to say when people say, yeah, but we have to fight. Well, we do have to fight. We have to fight the good fight. We are not more courageous than the apostles, right? So I don't track with the idea that, well, we're in a different time, so forget all that. Well, no, no, I don't think so, because the apostles were a marginalized community. And they're telling us, and they were facing persecution, they're saying, nevertheless, unity matters. Love for our brothers and sisters matter. In fact, it matters more in this time. You know, if Christianity is under more assault in the West,
0: then we need a more unified church, not a less unified church. Yeah, as you're talking, I'm thinking about a magnet and how, you know, if the church is unified and the culture is disunited, we are magnetic. this disunited person is drawn towards a place where there can be unity. But there's this sense in which we all want harmony. We want to be in a place where people love and care deeply about one another, they share. But when the church inverses that polarity and we become disunited, like the culture's united, well, it does exactly what you'd expect. It repels people the opposite direction. And yet, I think that there are going to be critiques of your book and critiques of your position around unity. And they'd say something like this, look, Dan, what you're saying sounds lovely you know, in the abstract, wonderful kudos. I'll give you all the claps and snaps and everything you want, but it's really challenging on the ground. I think about a conversation I had with a friend recently, who's really passionate about trying to correct teaching inside of evangelical churches that she thinks causes harm to women. And, you know, she kind of said, she's like, look for years, I tried the unity thing. I tried to play nice. I tried to be kind. I tried to do all of those things, but no one listened. It was only once I got angry it's only once I you know, started kind of yelling that people started to listen and change started to happen and people began to experience some healing. So she'd say, look, division's really the only way to disrupt the status quo that hurts people. And so you know, one question I think someone might ask you is, do you think it's just easy for white men like you and me to pontificate about unity because the status quo kind of works for us? That's an interesting critique. First of all, I mean, I think... You know, there is a tendency to discount
1: the message because of the messenger, right? Like, because of your social location. But I do say that, like, oh, you've been blessed more, privileged more, so it's easy for you to say that, you know, when you're the one perpetrating whatever, then you cry unity. I mean, I think I'm pretty clear. Sometimes unity is used as a weapon to not have accountability. Unity doesn't mean we don't expose and root out corruption. I mean, think about this, Paul writing to the church at Corinth and he's rebuking them strongly about their sin and corruption, you know, sexual sin that they're allowing, getting drunk at the Lord's table, all this sort of terrible things. He calls out the Galatians for their heresy. It doesn't preclude any of that. In fact, the thing that destroys the fragile unity of a local body is sin, corruption, heresy, those things, and divisiveness over stupid things. So it doesn't preclude any of that. Unity shouldn't be used as a weapon against it. I do think the way we go about these things And even as we are confronting very hard and difficult issues, and sometimes we have to speak truth to power, we have to always ask ourselves, what is our motivation? I think of the way that Paul talked to Timothy and urged him as a young pastor to stand on the truth, to stand against things that were wrong. He really couched it in the context of Paul's own testimony of of being the chief of sinners, of where he came from. He urges... Timothy to exhibit the virtues of the fruits of the Spirit, I would say, you know, they match the sort of fruits of the Spirit as he's doing that. And even think of Paul's harshest letter, his harshest letter to any church, arguably 1 Corinthians, right? I mean, that is also the letter where he puts the love chapter. So, in the middle of him rebuking this church like strongly, in the middle of him talking about very divisive issues like the order of worship and sign gifts and all these things, meat offered to idols. He stops and he says, look, if we don't have love, none of this matters, and here's what love requires. So I think even in the context of us holding people accountable, of taking a position on orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy, fighting the good fight, if you will, calling out things that are bad, I do think we have to ask ourselves, check our motives, what is my motive? Is my motive here to really do the right thing, or is it to be seen as doing the right thing? To become a sort of self-created hero in the eyes of people. And then also say, am I practicing love? Am I doing what Paul says in First Corinthians 13, where he says, love believes all things? Doesn't mean we're naive. Doesn't mean we hold each other accountable, but love gives each other the benefit of the doubt. Am I assuming malice where there's maybe just incompetence? Am I assuming malice where maybe there's just misunderstanding? So I think all those things matter. The virtues still matter. Um That makes sense. And look, we're always going to have division. This is why, and I have a whole chapter on cynicism, by the way. The church has always had divisions, because it's always made up of sinners. I mean, people are like, we need to go back to the New Testament church. I'm like, which one? (laughs) Like Corinth? You know, Ephesus? Like, So, Paul's having to talk about this in the first century. It's nothing new. But nevertheless, I do think, as it says in Ephesians, the word for it is really to strive to do everything we can to maintain unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, as much as we can,
0: you know, as much as in our power to do that. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, or maybe it's actually his third letter, but it's the second one we got. And he's writing to them and he's describing how they repented and turned eventually after the letters and some visits. And what strikes me is he describes his own posture during the battle, if you will, as sorrowful. Like He was deeply pained by what was happening in their lives. He was hurting for them because he knew the sin was destructive to them. And then we see the flip side of that, which is that he rejoices once they repent. He's celebrating. And one of the things that struck me as you were talking is that I feel like we often see the inverse, where people are rejoicing when they're dunking on someone else, when they're confronting the problem. But then when someone turns and tries to do the right thing, they become sorrowful. Like, ah, well, now my fun game's over. Which goes to your point of motives. Like, is my motive that I love this person and I care for them and I want to see their life transformed? Or is my motive that I want to look like the righteous one who has justice in my pocket? Motives is one thing, but do you think part of how we respond to, like you said, these serious issues in our churches, is it just motive? Or is there something also about our affect? I mean, are some things off limits for Christians and how we approach bringing about change? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, look at Paul. First
1: Corinthians, he's excoriating the church about this guy that is in sexual sin. He's excoriating the church for resembling the culture and the way that they treat these things. But then you have a second—actually, people think it's the third letter, you know, the second Corinthians, where he's saying, okay, he's repented. Bring him back. And so you see there's a different paradigm that he's using than the one that's typically used today, even among a lot of evangelicals, of— once someone has shown to be wrong publicly, you know, they're no good. And, you know, it's just sort of shame and honor culture where there's really no repentance. There's no pathway back. So I think those things are complicated. I also want to say, when we talk about unity, we talk about love. Public polemics are not necessarily a lack of love, right? A substantive back and forth around issues is not a lack of love or disunity, And I actually use some examples in the book. I mean, on the one hand, I use the example of like Love Wins and Rob Bell. And clearly he was articulating teachings that go against the 2000 year tradition of Christian orthodoxy, universalism, and now he's espoused several different other heretical teachings. So people calling him out, even the most loving people who said, So thankful for his ministry, but this is really concerning. Even that was considered, oh, you're being mean. How could you be mean to Rob Bell? It really wasn't. I think it's actually loving to confront someone who's in doctrinal sin or doctrinal error. It's loving the church to guard the borders of orthodoxy. But then on the other hand, you had churches that split over the way that they handled COVID, right? And longtime friendships and people that went to church for 25, 30 years, but they left because— They wore masks too much or didn't wear them enough. or You know, you want to ask yourself, like, you're going to leave a church over this, a faithful church that's been good to you, over an issue that may be important, but it doesn't raise to that level. And so I just think understanding the right fights and really the way we conduct ourselves in that. And I do think there are things, for your question, are some things off limits? I think we have to ask ourselves, is this a fight worth having? What is this going to do to our unity? Am I the one to engage in this fight? What are my motives? All those kinds of things. Am I asking questions because I want to make a name for myself? Or am I doing this because I really am concerned? I mean, those are all good questions. And look, our churches, our organizations are all filled with sinners, which means we need accountability. We need all those measures, all those things. So I just think there's a healthy balancing of some of that.
0: I like what you're doing because you're trying to present a more nuanced picture of unity. Like you said, it's not this Pollyannish, unity for unity's sake, always everywhere, no matter what. I don't hear that.
1: It has to be around the truth. I mean, it has to be around the truth. I quote from Timothy George and John Woodbridge's excellent book from a generation ago, and they talk about how unity around anything but the truth is a false unity. And it's also just not sameness, right? Right. Romans 12, two says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And Christianity, true Christianity, doesn't offer conformity. That's sort of something that the world offers. They promise independence, but really it's conformity to our mold, our, our thing. Christianity offers transformation. The picture of healthy Christianity and healthy body is a lot of different kinds of people, nevertheless united around the gospel. So it's actually not sameness. It's not, let's all have the same haircut, let's drive the same vehicle, let's do all these things. No, it's different. And I even think not just on a body level, but on the worldwide global level. And people will say, isn't it a shame that we have all these denominations? This is what Jesus intended. I used to think that way. Now I think, well, this is a mosaic. I'm proudly Baptist. I always will be. But every tradition, Presbyterians, Lutheran, PCA assemblies of God, they all bring an emphasis or bring something to the larger body of Christ that is helpful, that we, in our tradition, don't have all the answers. We need to draw from these others. And I think together, this is a mosaic, right? So it's not sameness, and I think we need to emphasize that.
0: God's grace, his body is full of people who have a strong justice orientation. They want to see the right thing done inside of churches, outside of churches, but I don't always know if those who have a strong justice orientation—by the way, I can easily be one of those people, so I'm not casting stones, I don't know if we always do a good job of evaluating what are primary concerns, what are secondary concerns, and what are tertiary concerns. And we don't always do a good job of evaluating what's the best way to address this problem. You know, it seems like the answer now is it's a social media post, it's a dunk in a podcast, it's a mean article. Like we have all these ways, but none of them are super healthy. And I've often wondered if part of that is just the function of the fact that we are living in a very anti-institutional culture, because when you're in an institutional culture, you usually have the future in view because you understand I'm stewarding a church, I'm stewarding a denomination, I need to hand it off to someone else in the future. But when you're anti-institutional, you're always living in the present. There's nothing that matters beyond the present. And that kind of short-termism makes every little issue feel incredibly urgent in the moment, because it seems like the most important urgent thing. You don't have long-term horizons to maybe calibrate those short-term concerns with. By the way, this is true on the left and the right. You know, We've seen the right, for example, Christian right become very critical. I mean, he's recently passed away, but critical of tim keller because he wasn't pugilistic enough he wasn't confrontational enough and you know they say look if we want to make change you know we're only going to deal with the lgbtq issue by you know calling teachers who teach trans ideology groomers that's the only way and you know what you got to admit that's been somewhat effective politically and publicly that's definitely not tim keller what would you say to people who they have a strong justice orientation they're just maybe not great at determining what matters most That's such a
1: great question. And I think part of what gets lost in some of our biggest disagreements, particularly about politics and culture, is the idea of calling. And the idea that God has not only called people different types of callings, but different types of emphases, right? By the way, it's funny that people say that about Keller, because Keller went into Manhattan, which was half percent evangelical, (laughs) preaching reform theology, biblical sexual ethics, and complementarianism in New York. And he didn't go with fog machines or anything else. But per your thing, I think People have different emphases, right? First of all, calling. I think that's one of the missing things when we think about cultural engagement. You know, I have a friend who's a senator and because of his calling, he has to be part of a party, the one that lines up most closely with his values. He feels called to that. He has to be a party man. He has to run in party elections. He has to comment more on issues. I have other friends that are pastors and they're pastoring a diverse congregation and they share the same faith. They share actually a lot of the same convictions, but they have different callings. So the pastor might look at the guy in DC and say, Man, are you partisan? We guys come on. It's not the party of the donkey or the elephant, it's party of the lamb, you know? And then the guy in DC is looking at the pastor saying, why doesn't he speak out more? You know, I need him to speak out on the line item veto or the, you know, the marginal tax rates. And the pastor's saying, I can't do that. I'm pastoring a church. We don't respect callings. And I don't think we also respect callings based around different issues, right? So some of us are called to be more generalists, like to talk about a wide variety of cultural issues that matter, you know, life, marriage, immigration, all that stuff. I've kind of done a lot of that in my career, although I've done a lot on the life issue and marriage issue, but other issues, other people have specific callings. I have friends who have been working at NGOs and working to lead poverty around the world. They are deeply pro-life, but they're not really going to be active on that issue because they're solely focused on poverty. I don't expect them in their organizations there to be constantly doing pro-life advocacy. But they have other friends who, the pro-life advocacy is what they've been called to do. And their sole mission in that organization and for their life is to speak out against the evils of abortion, to elect politicians who will do that. I respect that too. And what I think is, for us to say, rather than this is my calling, I'm right and you're wrong, to say, I can respect someone else who has a different set of calling than I do. Or maybe I respect someone who might approach with their tone a little bit differently than I do. Or there's a lot of people that may not even be called to be this active, right? Like they, they're going to steward their citizenship, they're going to try to shape their communities. But man, the way they do that is they own a business that employs people or they start a nonprofit locally that does this. And just because they're not screaming all day on Twitter about issues that you and I care about doesn't mean they're not active and not vocal. They're just doing it in a different context. I always laughed when people would be like, where is so-and-so talking about this? Why are evangelical (laughs) leaders silent? I'm like, those guys are probably talking to their elders about it right now. They're just not talking about it on the medium that you prefer. Mm. So I think we have to have some understanding. I mean, look, there are people that are weak. There are people that are squish on some of these key important issues. I think we should have accountability and things for that. But I think we ought to respect calling. Not everyone's called to the same thing. And... You know, we're a body that has different different multifaceted thing, if that makes sense.
0: I'm thinking about the story in first Kings, you know, you have Elijah who thinks he's kind of the last man standing, worshiping Yahweh. (laughs) And at the end of the story, you know, Yahweh tells him, Hey, I've actually still got 7,000 people who are bending the knee to me. And it turns out that there's actually a guy in Ahab's court, the king that's coming after Elijah, that's trying to murder him. There's a guy in his court that is hiding, protecting and feeding a bunch of prophets. And I always wonder what that conversation's like, you know, is Elijah like, dude, you're totally compromised. You're serving Ahab. Know, how yeah. can you bring that? And this guy's like, "Well, what are you doing, Elijah? You're yelling from the tops of mountains, but you aren't saving anyone." And we have to have space for Elijah and the king's advisor inside of the kingdom. Yeah.
1: By the way, I talk about Elijah in my book when I talk about cynicism because First Kings 19 is really interesting because here's Elijah who all these people turn back to God. He's discouraged because Jezebel does, and he can't win over Jezebel. So he has this martyr complex, which is very popular today. I'm the only one. I'm the righteous one. You know, and I think a lot of people, because of the nature of social media, because the perverse temptations, Christians can easily kind of adopt this like, I'm Martin Luther at the diet of worms in every confrontation. And <laughs> if you don't agree with yeah. me, you're a squish. And you know what's funny? What God disabuses him of that, he, you know, I'm the only one. He's like, no, actually, you're not. There's 7,000 others. And by the way, the next thing I'm going to have you do is anoint your successor, who, by the way, is going to be better than you. I mean, like, he totally dismantles that, and I think that's important for us not to get so self-righteous about things. You also see different callings in the New Testament. I mean, you have the apostles were very public, and they're following Jesus. You have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who were very devoted, but had to be wise about the timing and the when they declared their allegiance to Jesus. They waited to the end. They were disciples in secret. The Gospels don't condemn them for that right? They were serving a very important purpose. And by the way, had they not done that and carefully cultivated that, the fact that Jesus was buried in Joseph's tomb meant there was a public witness to the resurrection. I mean, because of that, people saw visibly that Jesus was resurrected. Otherwise, he would have buried in a common grave, right? Of course, it was all fulfilled by prophecy and foreordained by God. But, you know, he played a big part in this salvation story. And his part and Peter's part were both important, So I think we have to recognize that. There are people who are serving on corporate boards, teachers teaching in high schools, public schools, people serving in all these spaces who believe the same convictions you and I do when we can spout off on Twitter, but who have to be very careful about where they speak and when they speak, not because they're squishes and they don't have courage, but because they're trying to affect change from the inside. They're trying to do good things. And so I just think we should be careful about judging each other's
0: different callings. I absolutely agree. One other question related to this theme is, Maybe an issue of discernment, because I think one of the things that the digital social media era has done to us is that it's given everybody a platform. It's given everybody the opportunity to, you know, maybe it's shouting into the wind if you only have, you know, 100 followers, or maybe you've got lots of followers. It doesn't matter. We all have this sense that I can make public statements. I can make public stands. And so now listen, it feels like two things are happening at once. There's more Christians who seem to be under the impression that they're prophets— this is my calling. I must have been called to be a prophet because here I am, I've got a platform to speak on. And on the other hand, the expectation that all Christians should be prophets, which you've kind of already addressed, like the expectation that every pastor is going to speak on every issue, every single time and make a statement, which is clearly unwise. But how do we discern? I mean, how do I decide, is God actually calling me to say something about this? Is he actually calling me to weigh in on this? Or is that not my role? That's someone else's role.
1: I think... It's really good for all of us to say, is this an issue I should speak about? Is this in my wheelhouse? Do I know what I'm talking about? Am I the one to do it? There are certain issues that I think everybody, every Christian, you know, at some point speaks out about, right? But I do think we have to guard our voices and guard our platforms and guard our reputations in some way. Not too much, but, you know, like if you're a pastor, for instance, you got to be very careful because people are following you and you got to be careful to distinguish between what is, you know, a very clear thus saith the Lord and something that's a matter of prudence. You know, I think Jonathan Lehman talks well about this in his book, How the Nations Rage Between, like, Jagged Lines and Straight Lines. Like, there are certain issues that are obvious, right? Sanctity of life is obvious from Scripture, and marriage and family are obvious from Scripture. There's, you know, racism is evil, it's obvious, all these things. But then there's matters of prudence, right? Like, obviously, everybody should care about the poor, As a Christian, if you don't have a compassion for the poor, then you're disobeying the scriptures, you're disobeying God. But how do we lift up the poor? Good Christians are going to disagree on what's prudent. You know, is it some government? Is it private? Is it mixed? What works? Healthcare, even immigration, right? We all agree that immigrants are made in the image of God. We all agree that governments have the right to control their borders, but we may disagree on exactly how we should fix the system, how we should organize it. You know, that's okay. So I think we'd be careful of saying you know, thus saith the Lord on this, this is a definite issue, you know, especially as a pastor, as a Christian leader, versus like, okay, this is pretty clear here. This is a clear issue. Now, we may have people in our churches who specialize in those things who may be a little bit more specific, right? People your church will go to a think tank and they really think well about economics and they have opinions on all that. But even then, we have to hold that loosely, right? And say, I'm not going to test Christians' faithfulness based on where they believe the marginal tax rate should be or whether we should have flat tax or you know graduate income tax or
0: whatever. I think every Christian, pastor, layperson, politician, teacher, <laughs> journalist, whatever you are listening to this, I think we all should go through a process of discernment, maybe on a regular annual basis, just to ask, okay, what are the issues God is asking me to speak about, to speak into? What are the issues that he wants me to speak into publicly? What are issues he wants me to speak into privately? What are issues he wants me to, you know, write something about What are issues he wants me to build something to fix? I mean, there's so many different solutions to the problems that face our churches and our social order. And like you've just pointed out, there's not a one size fits all solution. But I do think that when you live in a digital era, the temptation is to simply regress to public speech. I mean, there's a fascinating Substack by Freddie DeBoer. I think it's probably two years ago. I'm not trying to make any points about BLM when I say this, but he was pointing out that the BLM protests were the largest protests that have ever happened in American history, just in terms of turnout and in terms of fundraising. They raised an enormous amount of funds. And he was looking, kind of doing a retrospective after two years. I mean, just for anybody listening, Freddie DeBoer's on the left, so he's not some right-wing talking head pundit. He essentially says for all the people that came out and for all the speech that was put online and for all the money that was raised, they accomplished virtually nothing in terms of real world change. And I think that's a huge warning to us when we're in this discernment process that actually speaking is important. It may not be the most valuable or necessary thing if you actually care about people.
1: That is such a great point. I mean, you've like hit on something that I'm very passionate about. If you actually want to move the needle on something, you have to decide if you're really trying to be an activist on a particular issue. Do you just want to make a point and emote? Or do you actually want to move the needle? Because those are two very different things. And that's a great example of it. After George Floyd, there was widespread consensus on left and right. Okay, we need to tighten up some things with police misconduct here. This is clearly wrong. Tim Scott had a bill in the Senate that had they rallied around would have had significant change, you know, funded police departments, but also extra accountability. But that movement instead just wanted to be mad and You know, what did we get out of two years? We got divided churches. We got, you know, the editor of Bon Appetit was canceled. We got all this stuff. Abraham Kennedy made more money. But, like, what actually happened? If you contrast to the actual civil rights movement, it's really fascinating because Martin Luther King obviously knew you needed to be in the streets and you needed to raise the prophetic awareness of the country. And that was so important. But he also knew, I have to work with LBJ. And if we want to move the needle, we got to get legislation passed, right? It's like that with every single movement. I mean, Wilberforce knew the same thing. He's like, I want this to be done. I want slave trade to end tomorrow, but I have to make incremental changes and I have to work within the system in order to make this happen. By the way, the movement that has understood this almost the best is the pro-life movement. And for 50 years has worked slowly in the system to bring about change, to get to the place where... We still have a ways to go, but several states have banned abortion or restricted it severely. I think 5,000 abortions less per month since Dobbs. So 50 years of both prophetic conscience, but also working. And, you know, activism, it's like that in any kind of leadership position. Do you actually want to move and persuade people? Because if you want to move and persuade people, there's a way to do that. Or if you just want to be seen as someone who's on the right side on social media, Are you just talking to your own people or you're talking to people with the goal of moving the needle? I think that's so, so important. And then asking yourself, you know, especially in this age, am I active and am I speaking out on this issue because I want to be seen as speaking out on this issue? Or because I genuinely care about it and I know something about it and I feel like I can use my platform for good. Because sometimes, you know, we sort of get rah-rah about stuff, and then six months later we've forgotten it. So I just think those are valid questions. And not everyone's called to that, by the way, not everyone's called to this sort of public social media type thing or writing columns about it, or whatever. And that's okay. It really is. So I think we had to
0: just ask ourselves, where does God want me? We live in a self-expressive age where there are a few things more important to us than, like you said, emoting, expressing our emotions, expressing our beliefs. Social media gives us this amazing opportunity to do exactly that and, I think we have wasted so much energy creating free content for these big tech companies that they can you yes. know, load ads onto. So we'll go buy their stuff. And Shakespeare had this this quote, he's talking about lust. I think he called lust an expensive spirit into a waste of shame, which is a graphic metaphor, but it kind of describes what happens on social media, right? It's an expensive words into, you know, a waste of shame. And I think it is deeply time. And even as we're talking, I mean, this is what I love. About talking to you in general is I'm just sitting here reflecting on my own social media. I'm reflecting on my own calling as a pastor because I know for a fact I've made missteps in this area. There have been places where I spoke out too loudly on something I didn't know enough about or that I just didn't need to speak about in general. I spoke about things with wrong motives. You know, it was about me. It was not about caring. And I want to say that because I think sometimes we get embarrassed about our social media. I mean, one of my biggest concerns in social media in general is just the complete lack of apologizing. It's like, if we're going to have this giant public space where we're all talking at each other, there should be a lot more apologies because (laughs) at least in my experience (laughs) in the real world, that's how it works. I am curious, you know, just kind of like a a final thought. If the Apostle Paul was writing a letter to the American church today about unity, what do you think his message to us would be? Well, I mean, that's a great question. And I've seen
1: people online say like, if the Apostle Paul was writing a letter, he'd write a stern letter. And I always want to say, everyone tweeting that assumes that they would not be included in that, right? (laughs) Like, yeah, you're on the good side. He wouldn't be writing to you because you're the righteous one. It would probably be one of both encouragement and love, but also some rebuke on the places where we're astray. You know, even to the Corinthian church, he expressed how much he loved them. Think of John's letters in Revelation, the letters to the churches from God. Even they, this first century, many of them probably more pious than we are, still they came in for some rebuke. Okay, here's some... Areas where you're falling. You know, I think it's complicated. I mean, part of me says there's a lot of issues in the American church. There's issues of celebrity, there's issues of division, there's issues of political polarization, racial segregation, you know, unfortunately. But then there's also a lot of good, you know, and ordinary people putting their guests on the table, serving their church, their community, serving the Lord in small ways. You know, the first people to a natural disaster are going to be Christians of some sort. Anywhere you look around the world where there's any kind of human suffering, usually the first people on the ground are Christians. Most of them anonymous. Most people are there not to get on TV or social media, but just because they felt the Lord compelled them to be there. I think if you took the church out of America, you know, it'd be trillions of dollars of social services that would be gone. So I think it would be a mixed message. That's what I'm saying. Here's some things that God is really doing and here's some areas of need of repentance. I really think... We should pray for repentance and pray for revival. I think this culture needs a powerful, prophetic, faithful, unified church. Man, the world is looking for, people are looking for something else. They're exhausted by all the false ideologies of the age. They're looking for an alternative. They're looking for hope. They're looking for, you know, reason for living. They're asking deep questions like, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be male and female? And, you know, we know that. Christianity has the answer for that stuff. So we have to be ready to give that. So I think it would be mixed
0: is what I'm saying. It's not like the provocative answer that would go viral. But... <laughs> I actually think it's the more provocative answer because as we look out at the landscape of Christian and secular media, there's not many people who want to say good things about the church. And I think if Jesus was here, he would be the first one to want to say some lovely things to his bride. And so in an era of disunity, there might be nothing more provocative then yes, Jesus still loves you. <laughs> Dan, would you mind praying for our listeners? Not at all. I'd love to. Lord, we just thank you and praise you for the the privilege of serving
1: you, the privilege of living at this time. Thank you that we are made for this moment, that we're not made for any other time in history, that through Acts 17, we know that you, you in your sovereignty, you appoint people in places in their time, people in their time. Lord help us not to be craven to the culture, not to give in and be shaped by the false ideologies of the age. But also, Lord, help us not to be fearful and uh, white-knuckling it as if, you know, you are not in control and not on the throne, Lord. Help us to be joyful, courageous ambassadors of the truth, Lord. Help the church to be unified, Lord. We pray that as much as it lies within us, me, and anybody listening, to be a unifier around the truth, around what is important, around what is good and true and beautiful, Lord. And uh, your name we pray, amen.
0: Amen. Thanks so much for being with us today, Dan. Where can people find you, find your work?
1: Well, they can go to my website, danieldarling.com. You can find links to get all my books, my latest book, Agents of Grace. You can get it there or anywhere you buy books. And then you can find links to my podcast and all that kind of stuff, so.
0: Well, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you, it's been an honor.